Hello and welcome to episode Mike Fisher of the Cost of Coincast. I'm your host, Trevor Shackles. With me today is a very special guest. It's Micah Blake McCurdy. Micah, how's it going? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, thanks for coming on. So you've sort of become a bit of a celebrity in the hockey Twitter world, and uh, it's not just Sens fans who are, who are looking at your work anymore. I suppose not. The, uh, although I still, still the people who pay attention to me skew a little bit towards the senatorial. Yeah, I know, but... What are you? You're up, you're definitely up there in the thousands of the Twitter followers. Twelve ish. Twelve. Yeah, yeah, almost thirteen. I keep it open. I would like to to say that I'm a good person who doesn't obsessively think <laughs> about the number of people who follow me, and that is an obvious lie. Yeah, I, I've I've got a ways to go. So uh, <laughs> jealous. Yeah, twelve point uh, twelve point eight. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's just get right into it. So. Um, for people who don't know you, you run the site uh, HockeyViz.com, and there's tons of cool features you can look at, and it's all nicely designed and stuff. Uh, something that people are going to look at in a lot in the next couple months is your playoff chances graphs. So just tell me how you come up with those numbers and why it might be different compared to some other sites. Okay, so the the first thing to understand too is that is that trying to understand how likely the Senators specifically were to make the playoffs is the reason why why everything I have on my website exists. <laughs> so the, the, I don't even remember exactly what year it was, but it was a bunch of years ago. The Senators were going on their California trip, and they had three games in hand and on whoever they were chasing. And the California trip was a little bit later than it was this year. And I remember thinking, they were four games behind, I think, four points behind, and they had three games in hand, which was the California trip. And so I was trying to work out how likely was it that they were going to make up those four points was that the Hambler Hamburglar run? Like no, no, ago? it was it was several years before. Oh, that, okay, okay. The and and but I couldn't, you know, and I try to think. Well, you know, four points out of six, it's not crazy. But then, you know, it's not like it's any old teams. It's the California trip, which is on the road, and it's you know, at the time, all three of those teams were very very strong, and and so I was like, well, I'm going to have to come up with some sort of estimate of team quality <laughs> to really get an idea about this. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have to do this properly, so I'm going to need to take more data. And then you start taking more and more data, and then you realize that that actually you can't keep it straight. And so then I started making pictures of the data so that I could see it and make sure that it was good. And and then and then the model got more and more complicated. And then I started sharing the pictures with other people because I figured if, if I made them, other people might find them interesting. And then sort of everything else just kind of spiraled and got out of control. Things got out of hand after that. And now there's something like, I don't know, 100,000 pictures on the website, <laughs> give or take. Um, but that's But that's the, you know, Will the Senators make the playoffs, and how likely is it is the is the central question that that everything else started to flow from. So that was how your website started, basically. Pretty much. That's the, pretty cool. The, so well, the pictures are just because that's how I think of hockey. I I don't. I'm not good with numbers. I'm good with pictures. Well, I mean, to be fair, don't you? I I, I can't remember if you still are, but weren't you a professor for uh, university? I was. No, and I teach I teach math. Yeah, exactly. Has, so, I mean, you are in a sense still a numbers guy. I guess I I sort of I like things quantitatively, which I guess means numbers. Uh, I just don't have much of a sense for numbers. Like if you say, oh, this is something like fifty five percent, and this over here is seventy five percent, I don't I don't understand that very quickly. Hmm. Whereas if I see if I see a, a thing, I say, okay, that's zero and that's a hundred, and there's a little marker that shows fifty five, and there's another one that shows seventy five. I just grasp it immediately. And yeah, so, well, I think I think a lot of people appreciate those those visuals on your website because 
some of them, I think like some of them, if you are coming into it and you don't know anything, it, it might be a bit hard to grasp because some, some of them, like I, I've, you know, it's the first time I've seen it and it's like, okay, I got to process this for a second. But, but certainly if you, at least if you have a bit of background knowledge, it, it is really helpful compared to just, you know, I like this, the, the website stats.hockeyanalysis.com, but like, I mean, there's no visitors, just a huge page of numbers. So it's kind of, you know, I guess your site is for the, for people like you who, uh, you know, need to see pictures and stuff like that. Right, and there's a there's a difference between people who want to look stuff up, and for that, my website is not as great as as for instance David Johnson's site that you mentioned. You know, there are plenty of websites that let you just look up a number, and if you're doing research of that kind, that's what you want. Um, whereas my my interest has always been much more much broader in a sense. I want to and and I want to get a hold of some sort of context, like what does that number mean in the context of the rest of the league or the rest of the conference or the division as it might be. And so for that, you need to. You need to look at several things all at the same time, and as soon as you're looking at multiple things at a time, you know you need you need a picture and not a table. Right, and I, and I think for, sorry. Oh well, I was going to say you asked me earlier about about what goes into the model. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought I would tell you a bit of that. Yeah. The, sure. The the overarching structure is reasonably straightforward uh, in the sense of if you're trying to find out how likely the Senators are to make the playoffs, for instance, um, where I just do simulations of the rest of the season. So. Try to you you try to load up a coin with a with a, a weight that's appropriate for the team strengths for all of the teams that they're going to play, and and so against the Caps, for instance, they might have a reasonably low chance, but against a weaker team like the Coyotes, they might have a considerably higher chance, and it'll be different on at home or on the road, and it'll be different if they're well rested or if they're not well rested, and then you just simulate all of the rest of the season for all of the teams um, as a bunch of times enough times to make. The chance of getting fluky distributions dominating your results reasonably small. So in my case, I find a million times generally works well. In fact, as we get close to the end of the season, I'll probably bump that up to ten million times just to be just to be <laughs> totally sure that there's no decimal places that go stray. That's just a that's just a matter of money. I mean, you pay money for for computation time on servers, right? Uh, and and these days with modern computers, it's not very much money to to you know to make your processor to whip it a little bit harder and make it go a little faster. But right. the the real details are, of course, go into exactly what's what things you consider when you're estimating the likelihood of one team beating another team. That's really the central problem, and that's much more much more technical. Um, at its root, it's still shots. So what other people call shot attempts, the, which is still the most the most reliable indicator of of future performance. Uh, but I also include goaltending, shooting talent, injuries. Um, I don't predict injuries, but whenever they happen, especially to important players, I make sure to write them down and adjust team rosters for for people who are going to be out. Right. You know, so Tampa, for instance, part of why they're looking really low right now is that they've been completely ravaged by injuries. Now, if I'm if I'm correct, uh, I'm not sure if you can totally speak on behalf of them, but I know a lot of people use the website uh, Sports Club Sports SportsClubStats.com. I think that site they don't take into account like opponent um, and team strength and stuff like that. Uh, I guess that's where your site varies, correct? That's right. They they do take into account a little bit. They're they have a fundamentally um, simulational approach, so it's the same. The harness, as it were, the is the same where they they look at the remaining results. That's right, the remaining schedule and simulate. So they can take into account things like games in hand, and they can take into account things like uh, strength of schedule. But the, the fundamental piece where they guess the likelihood of a team beating another team 
they use only past goals scored and past goals against. They, they have no other um, details for estimating how good a team is, which means it's very, very swingy. So, for instance, Washington looks like they're Stanley Cup locks almost by sports club stats because they've, in the last handful of games, they've been piling up goals. Um, they've scored something like six goals in each of, what, four of their last five games? Yeah, and, and zero even... against the system. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> like the the just incredible, incredible goal numbers they've been putting up. And and similarly, you look at teams that are in a funk, that are having trouble, you know, that are going through goal ten, rough goaltending patches, the, and, and you look at their probabilities and they just go haywire in the sports club stats model because they, they have an underlying predictor, which is itself uh, a very volatile measure of team strength. And uh, so that's, that's the primary difference, and that's the bulk of why, why I feel that, why I felt that I could do something better. You know, I looked hard at sports club stats before I started making my own predictions. I, I wanted to look at, at what was out there, and I thought, and it was because I wasn't satisfied with their approach, because I could see from the literature that I was reading that it wasn't sound. That's part of why I decided to make go to the trouble of making my own model. Right, and I think that's why I would mostly defer to your website. Um, I, ha- I had an article out yesterday talking about Senators' playoff chances, and I, I-, I gave their numbers as well as your numbers. Um, I think your hockey viz's numbers are a bit lower on the senators which, which makes sense because of their their shot metrics and stuff like that um and i remember actually how i began following you on twitter was two years ago uh during the, the hamburglar run for 2014-15 and every day you were tweeting out the the playoff chances for the senators like if they win they go up 10 percent or whatever i think i just remember people going nuts over those like Oh man, like this is that the, one of those games against Boston. Like if they if they'd won, it'd go up thirty percent or something, or down thirty percent. Um, so I mean, that's that's I remember that's how I started to follow you and look at your work, and it's just gotten a lot better since then. Or well, even there was better. I mean that that was a uh, uh, I mean that run was was really dramatic, and and that's part of why I got into doing forecasting at all too and part of why the question that I was trying to answer is really interesting to me is that is that I mean of course that that run with with Hammond and of course the shooting percentage especially late in games that accompanied that that wasn't just all Hammond you know there was a lot of of real excitement that went on with that and it wasn't just him you know that was an extremely exciting thing to be part of and part of the the fun for me is knowing just how unlikely it is you know when you it's it's one thing to to win a bunch of games, but then to know that you were a real long shot in them, something extra satisfying about that. And so, so that's part of, part of the fun. So of course, if you look at sports club stats, the, the, I'm just pulled, pulled it up momentarily. They give the senators 90% for the playoffs. I have them at, at just under 80. So it's pretty close now, but if you look at them, they had the senators as low as 35%. The in mid November, I think um, I thought they had them at like 20 the looks like looks like 31 from here. Oh, okay. But the which is still still considerably lower than I've had the Senators at any point. Right. The and also the they attribute a great deal of the recent success, the playoff chances to to a handful of recent games. Um, whereas in in my model it's much more smooth. So that's that's not always perfect, but it's a good sign that you have something. You should vary reasonably slowly. Um, although this year actually this year the playoff races are starting a little sooner. The 
there's there's something about the number of teams that are bunched up all together so that already each game is worth a fair bit more than I think it was at the same time last year or the year before. Right, well, it's looking like there, there might not even be any teams in the East that finish below a point a game. Yeah. There there aren't... In fact, I, in some sense, I think there are only really two weak teams in the league this year, the and which is considerably fewer than I expected going into the year. Um, you know, I, I Colorado and Arizona, I think we all expected were going to be weak. Um, Colorado, I don't think anybody expected was going to be quite this week. I expected them to get some improvement from yeah. their new coach. Um, but for instance, Vancouver, I thought was going to be there in the basement, and they've they've put together, a, you know, a pile of games that, that they've won unexpectedly, and so they're right back in the. I don't know. In the hunt is sort of a little bit generous to them, but they're not, you know, well well out of it like a lot of teams are. And then of course, just no one in the East has dropped off at all. Yeah, it is. It is really strange. I mean. I don't know if... Oh, I guess not, because Tampa Bay won last night. But before they played last night, they were last in the East, which is just... Yeah. I, that's just incredible. I mean, that that speaks to how poorly they played, but also the, just the fact that, like what you were saying, is nobody's dropped off. Like, Buffalo, Jersey, Islanders, like all these teams, they've sort of climbed back like a tiny bit. Yeah, and of course, Tampa fans probably don't appreciate me saying that nobody's dropped off. They, you know, they were expecting much, much more than they're getting this yeah. year from the team. But no one's dropped off in the sense of, of relative to the rest of the conference. You know, they're still like they're they were last yesterday before they won, but they're they're still right there. You know, in in points, they're not very far away from from a handful of teams, six or seven teams really. <laughs> so, um, you know, in fact, right now I have Tampa on pace for eighty-seven points with the playoff cutoff at ninety or ninety-one. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, like you can last in the East is is not so far out of the playoffs. I, looking right now, like last in the East is going to be something like four or five points short of a playoff spot. That's, That's a pile, <laughs> pile of teams piled up all in one tiny little band. And the West is, you know, they just don't have as many teams, so you can never get quite the same pile up. Um, and there you have those two weak teams that are that are clearly out of it. But I don't remember a year when only two teams are, are clearly out of it by the All-Star break. Well... Oh yeah, so yes, yeah, or only two. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially the oh, last few years more. with with teams tanking like Buffalo and and Arizona and all and stuff like that. Um, you're right. Like, there really hasn't been anything like this. Usually, there's at least like you know five, six clear teams. If you remember when Otto got Zabanajad that year, they were they drafted six, but they were they were fifth worst in the league, and they were seen as you know terrible, and they they still were only fifth or fifth last. Oh yeah. Back in those years, if you wanted to, if you wanted to get yourself down towards a really good draft pick, you didn't like you couldn't just be bad. You had to be seriously bad for a prolonged amount of time. And teams would go on long losing streaks, and then they would yell at me on the Twitter saying, you know, how come our chance of <laughs> of getting a good pick isn't better than than what you know the seventeen percent or whatever it was you said? And I said, well, you know, your team is really bad, but there are a bunch of other teams that are also really bad, and the race to be bad is just as tightly fought as the race to be good at the other end. So it's, whereas this year it's going to be, you know, I mean, with the two teams pulling out ahead, as it were, you know, so early, I don't think anybody's going to challenge them for 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 29th and 30th at this point. But uh, Which means that somebody's going to come extremely close to make the playoffs. Somebody's going to just miss out on a playoff run and get an extremely high draft pick. That's true. So I... that's, a, that's a fun thought. Yeah, that's never really happened before. It'll, uh, It'll definitely be interesting uh, watching, 
like the playoff push, but also just the trade deadline because teams will think they're they're in it. And it looks like the Senators are going to be a playoff team as well moving forward. Um, even though we don't know exactly what kind of team the team they are right now, like what are your thoughts on on where the Senators are right now and moving forward for the rest of the season? Uh, I think they're very average. The at risk of of being too wishy they really are right in the center of a whole lot of different things. The, I mean, being average is, I mean, an average team generally makes the playoffs in the NHL, and so I think that's consistent with them making the playoffs. They've they've probably been just a shade fortunate, picking up a, a few more points than you might expect given their team talent. Um, although it's still a little difficult to difficult to tell. The system that Gibusha has put in place is a little bit unusual. It's not super common, and it's a style that doesn't generally that hasn't led to persistent wins for very many people. Um, it's not sure if, if clear if that's because it's not a great style or just because it's uncommon or because it's not easy to find the right personnel to make it. So, But part of what makes them fun to talk about is that they have a lot of obvious strengths and they also have a lot of obvious weaknesses. And and so they're, you know, they're not like a team like the Capitals where there's sort of very little to pick apart and they're not at all like a team like Arizona where there's very little to hang your hat on when you say, oh, you know, I think they're going to win more than a handful of games. So so there's really a lot of, of give and a lot of take in the Senators, which makes them really fun. Right. There definitely does seem like there's a lot to pick apart. Um, I mean, I can just come up with so many players that I I think have been subpar this season. Um, Like all four players – well, actually, no, not all four. Three players in, in the – bottom six or sorry bottom four for the for the defense most of the bottom six forwards except for uh Dezingle or Smith or whoever's on that third line there or Hoffman I guess um and yeah it's just the the top end talent like Hoffman Stone Carlson I don't think anyone really questions that um but like you mentioned it's it's sort of you have really good players and then really bad players so and also I wanted to touch on this is sort of I want to talk about about this later about the system. Um, the system has sort of been a running joke on Sen's Twitter, and, and even the the Sen's Twitter account is is always tweeting stuff about the system. Can you actually explain what it is to me? Because when I watch games, I don't really watch it from a you know a standpoint of I'm not watching tactical things. I'm just watching you know where the puck's going and stuff like that. So do you notice anything? different about what Boucher is implementing compared to last teams? So I'm also not not very good at at that kind of coaching level detail of saying, oh, the breakout goes through the left-hand side now instead of the right-hand side. I mean, I don't pick up on those things when I'm watching. and But but what I do notice, what I can pick out statistically after the fact about what kind of pattern being employed the, is is that he is, Boucher is much more deliberate when it comes to roles for for lines, not necessarily for specific players. As players get moved up and down the lineup, their roles change. But the lines themselves appear to have very, very strict um, meanings or roles. And so the fourth line in particular, the their role is the least important and they get much, much less ice time. So if you get demoted all the way to the fourth line, you can expect to see your, your minutes drop heavily. I don't know if that's if that's because of a, an issue of faith in the quality of the players that are rotating through the fourth line, or if it's more a matter that he wants to have three lines that he uses much more often, and that just leaves very little ice time. Um, but one thing that's noticeable is that that's a strategy that other coaches have used before, uh, especially in the playoffs. St. Louis, for instance, the Ken Hitchcock has used a system 
with essentially only nine serious minute forwards almost every night. Uh, he's used a system like that for years with great success. And so, you know, other some people say, well, you know, that's what you do when you have bad fourth liners. Other people just like to build their hockey team like that, no matter how you slice it. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting to me is that in terms of deployment, in terms of minute deployment, which is one of the ways that that you can really see where coaches where coaches make their choices is that you know where or another they get more minutes to the guys that they want to get minutes to is the Boucher system seems to run through the forwards much more than it runs through the defenders the defenders have to pick up the slack in the minutes more and the deliberate choices are made with the forwards so so Pajot's line the has been a consistent checking line for the better part of the year now even even as people have moved in and off it so as Mike Hoffman came onto that line it maintained its its role where he was told to take up a defensive checking position and when he wasn't it, it was the same and so he had a different role on different lines so players that are forwards that are flexible that can move through different roles like that get moved around and some players don't get moved around so for instance um, the Kyle Turris is a great example of a player who does get moved around the if there's if there's extra shifts for the fourth line the, they go through Turris, who double shifts onto the fourth line, whereas that doesn't happen with Derek Broussard. He never gets those extra shifts. So he's he's sort of anchored into the second line center position where where people get moved up to him, but he doesn't get, get shifted. So, you know, exactly why that is, I'm not sure, but that's one thing that, that is a little bit unusual to me is that typically coaches that have a reputation for being defense first, and, and Boucher definitely fits that bill, Typically, they work their structures, their deployment structures, through the defenders. But he's decided to do less of that and much more his defensive deployment with his forwards, which is a little peculiar, but uh, but interesting all the same. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I uh, on talking about on talking about the the fourth line stuff. I I think it's it's got to be about the actual personnel because you look at the performances of. Uh, Lazar, Kelly, Neil, uh, whoever else has been on that fourth line throughout the year, they just really have not been good. And I'm assuming we'll, we'll get on to this later, but um, I'm assuming when Tommy Wingles comes in, um, probably Chris Neal will come out of the lineup. Maybe Chris Kelly does, and then Curtis Lazar goes to center. Um, but yeah, their their ice times are just super low. Uh, and there there are a couple other things I wanted to touch on uh, that you just mentioned in that um, when when you were just talking there. Do you think? Hoffman, like, is that going to be a long-term solution there on the if he actually stays on that third line? Because he's done really well. He's made Pajot and Pyatt look a lot better in the last few weeks uh, or so, and and Hoffman's actually producing points. Like, so do you think that's actually a long-term solution, or is he going to have to go uh, back to the top line at some point? I I think uh, I think he's adapted to it extremely well. I think he's I think he's taking, like you say, I think he's giving. Pyatt and Pajot a kind of punch that the that they've that they would otherwise just get hemmed in their zone constantly. I think that speed has really helped as a breakout for the third line. Um, do they keep him there in the long term? I suspect probably not. I think somebody with his scoring touch, you probably especially especially his shot specifically, I think you probably want to get some of the more juicy deployment. Um, probably just more time as well. Right. Um, but so I think probably you know Smith will probably run a little bit cold. He's been running hot recently, which is great for the team. But but like every score, he'll go through streaks and go through a cold streak, and he's replaced with Hoffman. I don't think that will harm the team in the slightest. Yeah, I uh, 
I would be pretty surprised if, you know, come playoff time and Hoffman's still in that third line. Um, and one other thing I find interesting with, with Boucher this season, it seems like I don't think anybody is complaining, obviously, uh, in comparing Boucher and, and Dave Cameron, just because Boucher seems way more meticulous. He seems like he's he knows what he's doing. He, um, you know, he's, he's very strict, like you mentioned before. But the, the possession numbers have not really shown up yet. Do you think that's... Like, do you think in, say, a year or two when some of the guys like Colin White and Thomas Shabbat are hopefully in this lineup and Ottawa probably has a better team, do you think that's when those possession numbers will sort of go up? Or do you think it's the system that's in place sort of lends itself to having a bit lower or a bit worse possession numbers? So I think there's a bit of both. Um, I also think if you look at if you look at rolling averages of, of shots for and shots against the so Boucher famously said before the season started that it would be at around 25 games that that's when you would start to see. Right. That's that's how long it would take for people to learn, and then after that you would get more representative results. And I don't know if that's if I'm some sort of anchoring bias because the n- number 25 is already in your brain, but if you look at their shot numbers over that course, if you look at it's more like maybe game 27 or 28, but if you divided it there, then the results before are something like. 42 or 43 percent of the shots which is grim frankly um which is you know only a handful of teams those kinds of numbers have ever even snuck into the playoffs let alone won a playoff series so that's you know really clearly subpar and then if you look at at all of the games since then so the last 20-ish games then you see something much more middling something like 48 49 percent the kind of you know just below average which is which is completely consistent with teams like the Rangers who've gone on deep playoff runs with numbers like that. So, you know, whether or not the Senators have the kind of shooting talent and the kind of goaltending talent that the Rangers have relied on, you know, that's, that's a different story. But in terms of, you know, or are they, are they putting up numbers that are, that are, you know, consistent with their ambitions and that their current trajectory is a playoff team that depends a lot on how much you're willing to treat those 25 games at the start of the season as as system break in time and how much you're how much how inflexible you are in that point if you just say look you know you were bad for those games i don't care what the reason was it's just bad you know then then you have to take a much more pessimistic view so i'm i'm personally divided on the point about how you ought to look at that um but the especially because i'm inexperienced with evaluating coaches and especially sort of onboarding of new coaches i don't know how long it ought to take for for players to start playing that sort of system Right, I, I think you'll you'll probably agree with me in that, in thinking that moving forward, it it's most likely that Ottawa is going to make the playoffs, and there's a really good chance they could finish second or third in the division, which is which is kind of surprising, honestly, just uh, just the way that the rest of the division is sort of falling out, and even though even if they do finish second, I don't think they're one of those top teams in the conference or anything. Um, even if they do finish with, you know, 98 points or something like that. But it seems like Boucher is probably going to make Ottawa go from, you know, sort of a subpar, bad, like, what did they finish, 11th worst team last year, make them yep. to about average or maybe slightly above average, and then they just end up overperforming like a tiny bit in the standings, and then that's how they get into second place. Yeah, there's there's other factors too that, that can inflate or deflate particular teams. The, oh, and, and so just to, to put a fine point on the answer to the question later, I don't think we need to wait for Shabbat and for White to see the real character of the team. I think 
I think it's reasonably clear now what it is. And, and the next, you know, the last half of the season, I think will tell us more or less what we want to know combined with the data that we've already got. But yeah, in terms of overperformance too, there's also a, a schedule weakness that's built in. The, you know, despite parity being what it is, the Metropolitan Division is much, much stronger than the Atlantic Division taken as a unit. And so all of, so anybody who's floating above water in the Atlantic is, is going to have an easier time than the Metro teams. So the, you know, the Metro, <clears throat> pardon me, the, the first couple of rounds in the Metropolitan are going to be knife fights. And, and it's probably going to be more difficult to win those two rounds just out of Metropolitan than it's going to be for whoever comes out of the Metropolitan, supposing they're still alive, to win the rest <laughs> of the Stanley Cup. So there's going to be, you know, there's there's going to be a, an aspect there where in the Atlantic, whoever comes second and probably also third is going to have, by definition, is going to have some slightly inflated totals compared to the numbers that they would have put up if they were in the Metropolitan. Right. The Metro is kind of insane this year. I mean, it's not even really that inconceivable to think of a team like Montreal, um, Montreal, Ottawa, or Boston somehow getting to the third round because even for a team like Ottawa, I mean, I, I wouldn't bet on it, but you know, if they play a team like Toronto in the first round, it's, it, it'll be close and you know, seven game series, they could beat them. And then Montreal, Montreal's the better team, but you know, it's not like I, I don't look at them as unbeatable or something. So it, I don't think they'd go any further than that in the third round or anything, but going to the third round is so much easier compared to if you had to go to go through say Washington and then Pittsburgh just to get to that third round. Yeah, and and even Montreal, you know, who's, who they still have a, a pretty strong lead in the division. If you transposed them into the Metropolitan and made them a ninth team in the Metro, they'd be a wild card team. Yeah, which is which is amazing to think about. So the 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 division strengths are are really you know markedly different, and they do create that that weird vertigo effect. No, somebody. I, I think probably something sad is going to happen. Like the Capitals are going to lose in the second round of the playoffs, probably after a seven-game series against somebody extremely strong. The, you know, and then another seven-game series against somebody equally strong. It's going to be very sad. But then the flip side of that is that somebody might come through from the Atlantic, and it could easily be the Senators. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Melnick's going to say that. You know, anything can happen, and uh, and then they'll just get you know swept by the Penguins in the third round or something. But uh, <laughs> so. I also wanted to touch on another thing about the system. Um, is there anything that, because I mean, you, you're looking at the numbers all the time and stuff. So, is there anything about the Senators, about the team in in general, or any specific players that has stood out out to you that's different compared to under the Cameron regime or the McCall, uh, sorry McLean, um, Paul McLean teams? Is there anything like good or bad that you noticed just in the past few months? The I. Certainly, Mike Hoffman. Um, I don't think there was ever any reason to to attach the defensive liability stigma that he had, but it's been un- under those old coaches. But it's been very pleasing to me to see not only not only him play in the roles that he's played, but but to play them extremely well. So that's been that's been curious. If there were any lingering doubts about that, that's the they've been uh, well well dissuaded. The, in terms of statistical little oddities. I think um, one of the things that's surprising to me is is just how I touched on it briefly earlier is just how often Turris is given extra shifts. They that he's relied upon to be to soak up extra minutes in a way that I 
that is is surprising even considering his previous deployment where where they you know it would be a little bit easier to give extra shifts to somebody who wasn't pushing the top mid forward minutes on the team and instead of tourists but that's a little bit surprising the other thing that i found a bit surprising was how quickly the team gave up on matt pumple this year and put him on waivers that he he had atrocious on ice results mostly he just couldn't buy a save and also had horrific, horrific on-ice shooting percentage underneath 2% at 5-on-5. So four <laughs> times worse, four times worse than the team average. So, you know, he's like, you know, if you can't buy a goal, that's one thing. And he's he's getting, he's on the ice for goals at four times less often than the rest of the team, which is, you know, and, and so presumably the, you know, that may or may not have been the reason why they, they gave up on him. But I was a little bit surprised at that, especially because I think he's flourished in New York and there's a little bit there's a you know coaching is one thing um, but there's there's another level of of organizational blindness where it seems like these kinds of of well-known statistical indicators for people who are you know Pumple is not an amazing NHL player but he's clearly an NHL player and the, so he's clearly in the distribution of players there's no reason to expect those kinds of those are you know like my natural talent for instance is clearly zero percent for <laughs> for on a shooting percentage you know I'm I'm clearly totally useless that so there's a bit of a it's a bit disappointing to see to see players who go through nasty slumps just get just get discarded and the same thing happened to to Shane Prince yeah I was gonna bring that up yeah and other (laughs) other players have have fallen from the same thing and so for instance one of the things that is nice though on the other hand is that it's not universal players in this kind of trap aren't aren't constantly being shunted aside the same thing happened to Frederick Clayson in his early games you know, and, and then all of a sudden, his last handful of games have been the other side of the coin, and and everybody's saying, "Oh wow, Frederick Clayson's so much better than he was before," and really, he's just had a chance to show in minutes that he's playing the same as he always did. So, you know, that's the that's the the things which stand out to me are those. I still see the organization getting suckered in by by sort of bright lights that that statistically we know don't last. Oh yeah, I mean, um, I think. You mentioned Prince, and that that's a pretty solid comparison to Pumple. I, although with Pumple, I I'm not really upset that they lost him. It it would have been nice that if they could have at least gotten a draft pick for him or something. Um, <clears throat> haven't followed his career too much since he went to the Rangers. Um, I don't think it was a huge loss, but yeah, Prince like that was even worse just because the results were there. I don't even. I, I can't remember. Like, I'm not sure if he even had, you know, a poor plus minus rating or something like that. He just, he, he probably could have had a few more goals here and there. Um, it just didn't come for him. But you're right. Hopefully, like, I know there is one guy in the organization, one quote unquote numbers guy that they have. Um, and he's been involved a lot more with, with Guy Boucher and Pierre Dorian. So hopefully um, he's involved more in the future. Um, I guess not when... I guess they didn't consult him when they're waving Matt Pumple, but eh, whatever. It's not really a huge deal, I guess. No, and it's it's. I mean, as in terms of impact mistakes, it's hardly it's hardly especially serious. Yeah, you know, he's he's the kind of player that you can replace. But the but it's it's curious that the his waving coincided with with a really sort of bright red flag statistical indicator. Although I've so one of the things that this is changing the topic very very slightly. One of the things that analytics people get whacked for a lot is, is about always constantly finding reasons to dislike players to say, oh, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have done, you know, you shouldn't play this guy, you shouldn't play that guy, and 
And so one of the things that I've been noticing, interesting, a curious statistical outlier, is that the, the senators on a whole are doing, are doing a very good job at keeping pucks to the outside this year. This is something that I've only been able to measure this year. And, and it's a trope, of course. You know, I already hear people, people's eyes rolling as I use the phrase. The, and, I mean, the you can actually measure year, that, though. <laughs> right. Well, you can, you can measure at least where the shots actually come from. So right. you can't, you know, there's, there's a sort of dog that didn't bark problem there, too, right? Where, where we know that players don't take shots from the outside because they know that they're bad shots. So, so presumably, you'd also see strong defense that was keeping players to the perimeter. You'd, you'd also see that in terms of a lack of shot volume, that people wouldn't be taking those bad shots. So the Senators were still seeing the volumes against this year that were, that were similar to last year, but the shot distribution that's, that's coming is considerably further to the outside. Now, so there's, there's a curious little statistical watsit here. We don't we know that shots from the outside go in less often. It's obviously better if you can shoot from the inside. And we also know that elevated shooting percentages for teams, uh, like elevated in the sense of you know up in the 16, 17, 18%, which teams will do for five or 10 games, that they don't last much beyond that, that they're liable to come back down at any moment. What we don't know is we don't know if that's because they stop getting to those good areas or if it's because they just happen to be scoring on their not-so-great shots that they were taking anyway. So the distribution of shots, we don't know if that's what changes or if it's the distribution of, of whether or not the goalies make the saves that, that changes. So you suspect that if the old hockey heads are, have any sense left in their bodies, you suspect that if those tropes about keeping players to the outside are true, that it's the shot locations that you, that you try to affect and the shot qualities with screens, etc. And that the and that the variance is primarily goaltender variance. If that's the case, then the improvement in the Senators this year compared to last year that is probably quite substantial. And one of the people who's, who most typifies this not allowing shots from immediately in the net front despite allowing lots of shots is Mark Borowiecki, who's a, a common whipping boy for analytics people. I'm sure if you searched my Twitter history for... <laughs> Or mine. For his name, you would find yeah, you would find any any amount of of ill humor and ill will. But but if you look at, at where people take shots on the Senators when he's on the ice compared to when he's not, especially when you look at his minutes deployment, which which rise sharply as the Senators are leading, he gets twenty five ish percent. So not even not even a regular shift when the Senators are winning. Sorry, are trailing. But then as soon as, as soon as they're up by one or two, he's up into the 30, 33%, so taking his regular shift. And once it's once up by three, it's 45%. He's getting every second shift almost when defending big leads. Hmm. So part of that is just because he's fresh and he hasn't been used. But also, a lot of it seems to be that, that I mean, there's no question also, he completely destroys the Senators' offense. There is no offense for Ottawa when Borowiecki's on the ice. He is the stick that the play dies on. But the defensive impact does appear to also be there. So... There's there's something, you know. There's only so many like pure role players you can carry on a tight roster, but the but that specific role of no one will score, not my team, not your team. The what little I can measure suggests that he's not nearly as bad as as has commonly been assumed by just looking at shot totals. Even if shot totals are still a more useful thing to look at in general for most players. Yeah, I think most people would agree that Borowiecki has been better this year. And I think you can attribute that to just, I guess, him improving. But I would 
give a lot of credit to Guy Boucher's system as well, like you mentioned. Um, I was also wondering, like, do you? It seems like Boucher is is sacrificing offense for defense, and it seems like that's really affecting Eric Carlson too. He still has. Uh, I don't remember how many points exactly he has. He still has a lot of points, um, not quite as many as last year, and he doesn't have quite the same uh, as good shot metrics as last season. So, I mean, I think it's probably attributed to the system. Like, would you say that that's fair? Yeah, in fact, I think in probably both of these things are are system related. Although it's hard to be very sure. Coach evaluation is a real pain. But for instance, with Borowiecki, you know, I, I just mentioned him keeping shots away from the from the goal if you look back at uh, exactly those same shot maps in previous years you know you see you see masses of shots coming from dead in front when Borowiecki's on the ice hmm. so it's not some intrinsic part of his character that I what I suspect that my the you know there's what you ask for and then there's what you get which is the like people say oh you know we matched up so-and-so against so-and-so well that's what you tried to do you may or may not have actually succeeded in getting those matchups, you know, and, and you can say like Randy Carlisle, when he was coaching Toronto was a great example of this. He would constantly say, Oh, you know, we're, we're going to limit shots against, and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it's going to have the result. And, and what we're going to get out of that is the following result. And then you would watch his teams play and you'd look at what happened and you'd say, well, that may very well be exactly what you want, but what you're doing doesn't get you there. That it, it just, it's not that your ideas are bad. It's that your implementations just don't do those ideas. So, so everybody says, oh, you know, we want a system which keeps players to the outside, but maybe it's not not every system that can do it. But then going to Carlson, like you were mentioning, there's no question that he's played a totally different role. The, in particular, he's played a much more um, multifaceted role under, you know, maybe you shouldn't even use the word role when you talk about what he's been right, doing he's under doing Boucher compared to penalty kills and... Right, so he never saw any serious penalty kill time, but now he's... His overall minutes are down a little. He's still the comfortable, comfortable minute leader on the team, but the but he's not playing the you know frankly Herculean, not entirely safe minutes that he was playing last year. But but he's also playing penalty kill time, the and you know blocking shots while still playing power play time. So he's he's becoming much more of a Swiss Army knife instead of a just I'm going to take the puck from my zone and take it all the way to the other zone. In fact, all the way below their goal line, and that that specifically. The, the probing maneuvers from the point down below the goal line, you know, he, he's clearly been told to do that much, much less. And they, they definitely wreak havoc. And, you know, and maybe you can get away with that if you have Carlson's back-checking ability. But then if you're going to play like that, you know, your minutes are going to be more tiresome minutes. And just because you can come back and put incredible backside pressure on some guy, you know, make up an entire zone over 200 feet, doesn't mean you, doesn't mean that's necessarily a good idea to do that. You know, there's there's defensively capable and there's defensively wise if you like so you don't want to be sort of revving your car or your carlson to 6,000 rpms constantly and i think Boucher's system if you like is definitely taken some of the dynamicness out of ottawa's offense um but if it if it saves an injury or two then it could easily be it could easily repay itself right and and i think um besides that columbus game uh, on sunday there I think most of the games have sort of been laid back, not too entertaining, uh, besides a handful, and they've been getting the results. So it's hard to it's hard to complain about about the system that is in place. But would you? I mean, yeah, I, I guess it's probably good for the team, right? Like compared to say Paul McLean, who had 
for for a while there, it looked like he had a pretty good system where it was lots of offense, but also lots of goals against. Um, that that seemed to work really well for a while, and then that sort of cratered in the 2013-14 season, or uh, sorry, the year after that, 14-15. Um, so do you think that, like, do you think it's going to work long-term, this system, even if it means Carlson is going to produce a bit less offense and, you know, some other guys are going to have to adapt? So in terms of, sorry, the in terms of preserving Carlson, you know, as a, as a day-in, day-out threat, I think it definitely does. Uh, I think it, it just keeping minutes down to, to a place where he's not likely to severely hurt himself is is good. Right. On the other hand, the I think playing tight, low-event hockey in general exposes you to randomness more than playing high-event hockey. I think if you if you which is just broadly that if you if you have a if you have if there's definite edge and talent between the two different teams that are playing that you're going to see in repeated sampling you'll see that edge and talent appear more clearly yes if yeah. you have more events so if you so in some sense you know coaches talk about how games you know with ma- with lots and lots of scoring are out of control it's probably the opposite games with lots and lots of scoring probably go to the better team considerably more often than games with with low scoring which is a bit counterintuitive. It's certainly against how how coaches and commentators talk. So, I think what you risk is you risk, you know, if you're playing low event hockey, you risk going into patches where you have, you know, ten games where you only score sixteen goals, you know, and you're you're struggling really really hard to score, the because you're so devoted to a particular system, and that that you you, you can find it very difficult to break out of the. So I, I would be a little bit worried. I think you need a it's not necessarily a bad idea, depending on the on the team that you've got, it can be very appropriate, but you need to have a sort of stronger statistical stomach. You have to be able to say to your general manager, you have to be able to say to your fans, you know, there's going to be more streakiness. That's that's a little bit counterintuitive though, that everybody wants more consistency. But if you play tighter hockey, you'll get less consistency by definition. Right. And so that yeah, that makes it. sense. Just because you're having a larger sample, right? If it's a 10 to 9 score, um, you know, if you're scoring 10 goals, that means you're doing a lot of good things. But if you're only scoring, if you only win one to nothing, that's probably indicative uh, that you're, you know, you you have to win a lot of lucky games. And perhaps maybe Boucher notices that his team, like his roster construction, isn't that great, and maybe that's why he's he's trying to hold back a bit. But at the same time, um, I I would believe that he sort of had the same system when he was the Tampa Bay coach, and they went to the conference finals. So um, I don't know. I'm not sure if that situation was totally different, but he's probably going to keep it the same way, which I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that works when Ottawa will most likely, hopefully, have a better team next year or the year after. It'll, yeah, that will be very curious. And of course, the fact that he'll have an, a system that's established will presumably make it easier to adjust to new players. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're, we're recording this episode at a really good time here because it's right after Ottawa made two notable moves, first of which was uh, re-signing Zach Smith, uh, and then the second was, of course, acquiring Tommy Wingles. What's your thoughts on, on both these moves? Let's start uh, with the Zach Smith four-year extension. So Smith, I, I I didn't mind it. Um, 
the I don't mind it for the player. I don't mind it for the team either. The it's it's probably a little more term than I would give to somebody who wasn't who I didn't feel confident was going to be in my top six for the bulk of that time. Um, I I just think four years for a guy who's going to play probably at least half of his minutes in the bottom six over those four years is is just a shade long. But the but in terms of of dollars or in terms of percentage of cap, um, I don't mind it especially. And part of what makes Smith really useful. That is that he can, as it is clearly valuable to Boucher, he can move around and play on all four lines. On the top line, you you start to see his offensive weaknesses really obviously, but you can do that for a few games. But he's quite comfortable on the second line. The when when he's played with second liners, he puts up second line scoring numbers. When he's on the third line, he puts up third line scoring numbers, and when he's on the fourth line, he puts up fourth line scoring numbers. There's something really, you know, very kind of this is what you see and this is what you get about Zach Smith. And there's a lot of a lot of players who would love to, you know, who don't even have that much of a ceiling. So even if he has a visible ceiling, and you'll you'll see some of his mistakes get exposed, the you can still find a place for him in almost every night. You know, no matter what, he can move to the wing, he can play center. There's there's a lot of of tools, if you like, there. And you see that statistically too, where he comes out, where he never seems to be swamped, except when he gets, you know, right up onto the top lines. So, so in terms of of you know utility contracts, I I don't mind it at all. I think if you if you gave him sort of six million dollars for two years, which is the same amount of money, I think it would be a huge mistake. Right. I think I think I, I agree with you. the The term is I would have liked if it was three years and maybe like a shade under three, but I mean that's not really a huge difference, and. I think he's sort of like a poor man's Clark MacArthur in that, that you mentioned that he can go up and down the lineup, first line, second line, third line, fourth line. Um, probably I would – I think on a really good team, he should be a third line left winger and uh, providing some offense uh, from the bottom six there. But at the same time, he's shown tremendous chemistry with Mark Stone and like who wouldn't really. But um, honestly, it's probably not that big of an issue if he's on the second line, which is – I mean, that's just an amazing sentence to say. If I had said that a year ago, like, that's just – it blows my mind. But <laughs> anyway, like, he he's 28, so it'll he'll be 32 by the time the, the contract ends. So that'll be a bit old. But, you know, 3.25 isn't too much as long as they try to move or can move somebody like Dion Phaneuf or Bobby Ryan because, uh, I don't know, they're, they're going to have some – problems trying to re-sign guys like Eric Carlson, Mark Stone, Kyle Turris because they they all have a couple years left here so hopefully that doesn't come back to bite them in a couple years. Yeah, it's I mean you can never tell quite how much of every move is motivated by money and and exactly where the internal cap is going to be set in a particular year is is uncertain and an extra uncertainty of course is the Vegas draft that's coming up this summer. Yep. And there are there are, and it's not just uncertainty in terms of, you know, oh, we'll wait and see who Vegas takes from us. It's the plenty of teams, for instance, I don't think the Senators, but maybe 10 or 12 teams around the league have to make moves to be compliant. They're not currently compliant with, you know, they don't have players that they can expose. They don't have enough games played on the rosters of the right types with the right mix of contract types. So, you know, that's not a big deal. They got a long time to make those moves. But then, of course, you also have to make moves to cover happenstance, like injuries of various types. The you also have to make moves to cover the playoffs, and 
and Ottawa, for instance, you know, their playoff position is by no means secure. The, and if they're going to to try to make a run, they may well try to buy a player or two. The so all of those things have to happen before the Vegas draft. So lots of teams, and I'm sure Ottawa is in this boat, are you know working the phones, but then they say, oh well, you know, let's circle back to that once we have a little bit more little more certainty about what's going to happen to us this off season. So this this off season is. You know, everybody says that every offseason is the most unusual, the most interesting, the most peculiar because they're they're thinking <laughs> about what makes the franchise interesting to them at that moment. You know, there's, there's so many things that are always going on, but this summer I think really is because that Vegas draft isn't going to happen any other time. You know, so you you can ignore injuries, but you can't ignore that draft, and you don't. You know, Rick Nash presumably will get will get traded or or other trades will be made so that he can be protected. But right now it looks like he's going to go to Vegas. So you know, how, how do you rank that in your mental models about what you do if you're Ottawa about how to rearrange players. It's just too many, too much confusion, too much uncertainty. It's just incredible how much thought has to go. Uh, like all, all these GMs, I feel bad for them. They just have to do so much work until whatever the deadline is, March 1st or whatever. And then after that, um, in the summer as well, just to prepare, for, just, sorry, just to prepare themselves for the draft. Um, like you said, they, they got to have, they can't just protect the guys they have. They also have to have players who are going to be exposed. And Ottawa's in a pretty decent spot in that I believe they just need to sign a guy like Curtis Lazar and maybe somebody else, and then they should be fine because they do have a goaltender. They do have enough defensemen and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it'll be such an interesting deadline to see. There are going to be some moves that might look really strange at first and then we realize the implications of it later like the fact that um you know one guy might have just been lost in the draft anyway or i do wonder if we're going to hear about trades to vegas for say like somebody trades a draft pick just so they don't take one of their players or i wonder if we hear about that um maybe like a week before the draft or something not in in february or something but it'll i've, I've never seen anything like this because I was like five or something when Minnesota and Columbus came in the league, so it'll be really interesting to follow. Yeah, I was a lot older than that, but I wasn't paying close <laughs> attention to the league at the time, and it's certainly not at the level that I am now. So the and I mean, there's going to be there's always moves that people make that that they shouldn't have made because they were worrying about something too much, and there's always moves that people should have made that in hindsight look like they got blindsided and probably just they made a miscalculation. So there's. You know, this is this is where you want not just front office. You know, we we talk about, you know, the GMs always get all the extra attention. The you know, and some owners are more obvious than other owners, like Melnick in Ottawa. But this is an area where where you really need depth of front office. You need to have people working on you know all sorts of scenarios. What happens if we do this? Well, how does that affect all of the and other that's things? Ottawa's weakness. Well, it's. You know, I've I've done a little work for a handful of teams around the league now over the years for consulting work, and one of the recurring themes that comes up is almost none of the front offices that I've had any experience with have anywhere close to the, the total the total labor power that they ought to have. It that maybe everybody is better at their job than it appears to me, and they're all sleeping easily at night. But but it seems like front af- front office after front office is doing the work of six people with three men, hmm. and that's it's. You know, and, and I think that's part of why you get these embarrassing things that come up. There's only so many hours in the day. Work is a never-ending process, and and so things get 
things get missed. You know, you put a guy on waivers and then you realize you didn't have to put him on waivers or you say you don't have to and then you realize you did. And this is just because you can't check up on everything and you only have so many people to go around. Yeah, well, we see so many mistakes every day and Otto has been a part of that. Um, you know, it'll be, I don't know, I, I just can't wait. It hasn't really started yet um, with, with all the big trades and stuff, but I'm sure in, you know, two weeks we're going to, start to see a bunch of them come in and speaking of trades uh let, let's move on to the tommy wingle stuff what do you think about that it's a pretty small pickup but what are your thoughts uh, a little bit curious all the same the it's i mean I, I like the deal from ottawa's point of view certainly i think wingles is a, a clear upgrade not a very large upgrade but a clear one all the same on uh, on all of the fourth line the i think he's and, and I also think he can play on the third line as well, and possibly even the second line is certainly within game. The, so there's going to be, although he's going to play presumably mostly on the fourth and third lines. So there's, you know, and I think what they gave up in return is 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 very very small. The second round pick is is just a pick. The and and the two other players um, are are permanent AHLers. But so and and on the other flip side of it, it's a little bit curious from. From San Jose's perspective, I mean, he's a he's a definite bottom six guy, but you wouldn't think you would have to eat thirty percent of his salary, and and take on no no regular players in return. Um, but it clears some space for them, and they get the so they're presumed. I mean, they're almost certainly going to be making um, cup run moves at some point, and they're going to need space for that. So I can see it from that point of view. Um, although the asset management doesn't seem great to me, the so. I don't think it's going to cause that much disruption, though. I think, I think some of the players on the fourth line um, have known that their performance hasn't been the kind of performances that's going to keep them away from healthy scratching. The and Neil and Kelly are both more than old enough to benefit from from maintenance days, regardless. Especially Kelly, who's really showing effects of age at this point. So the I, I don't think there's going to be you know there's definitely a musical chair situation where there's more bodies than seats, but I don't think it's going to be terribly difficult to accommodate. Yeah, do you think multiple guys, do you think all three of those guys in the four line, fourth line are, are going to sit at one point or at various points, or do you think it's just going to be a, a guy like Chris Neal who sort of does a Chris Phillips 2.0 where he gets the milestone and then just sort of never plays the rest of the season? Uh, I think it'll, I think it's just just from my eye, it looked more like Kelly to me, the who who's more likely to sit than Neal. The, but but I think that they'll all sit at various times, and I think there's a, a comfort organizationally with that. The especially when you look at the at the kind of minutes that they've been getting, the the whole the whole structure of the forwards is centered around having a top nine, and the other three are are really clearly afterthoughts for Boucher. They're not used in in particular ways at all. So, for instance, Chris Neal under under Cameron and also under McLean would routinely be um, well, not routinely be, but occasionally be sixth forward when um, um, sorry sixth skater when yep. Ottawa was behind yeah. <laughs> and trailing which is unheard of now the, and and so even those like little plum rolls are are not being handed out not to Chris Neal or to any of the other fourth liners so I think it's it's reasonably clear you know I don't think it'll be very jarring to any of those when they find themselves getting scratched but then people are going to continually get hurt I mean everybody gets hurt all the time and, and Ottawa's going to continue to try to move people from within, they're not going to be making many more trades like this Wingles trade. I don't think. In fact, even one in a year is for a bottom six piece like that. I think is more than I expected. Yeah, I think 
it's pretty clear that they don't have much faith in that fourth line. Like you said, you just look at the look at the ice time. Um, and, you know, at least that's a good sign that Boucher realizes that. So, And one other thing is hopefully by, I guess, probably just the last few games of the season and then maybe by the playoffs, a guy like Colin White can come back from Boston College and, and uh, play in that bottom six there, take Tom Pyatt's role probably on the third line. And, and all of a sudden then you're looking at, you know, a bit better bottom six. Um, not amazing. You still have to play probably a guy like Lazar and I guess Pyatt in there, but it it's a bit better. So it, I do like the, the Wingles acquisition. It's They pretty much only gave up a seventh. You know, Robinson and Startine are, are nothing. It's just, just money and, and a body you got to move. So I, I liked it and it didn't really have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I still, I still think you get more, a lot more value for your money from Lazar for trading him based on his pedigree, rather than, oh, yeah, they could get rather than trying to develop him any further. But the, um, which is would be again be an uncharacteristic move for the Senators. Yeah. But, uh, but you never know. What do, what do you think they could get for him? By the way, like I, I honestly have no idea. Um. Uh, it depends. It depends a lot on. You know, this is is a little bit uncharitable, and I don't like to think this way very often, but. But those kinds of deals where you're trying to to deal a player based on what happened to him in the past instead of what's likely to happen to him in the future are are always a little bit unkind by nature. This sort of whole idea is we're gonna we're gonna find somebody who's not as smart in their thinking as we are. So the uh, perhaps a more charitable way to put that is that you would have to you'd have to watch for somebody who had a specific need and who had a, a way of thinking that fit that. And so that might be more a matter of opportunism of waiting for somebody who's who's in a position where they needed that kind of player, you know, some maybe a team with a desperate need for centers for somebody who could play natural center with a the kind of checking void. That it would be the kind of, you know, even then I don't think you're going to get a great deal more than say a second round pick at this point. Yeah, you you know what I just thought of the interesting thing though is if if there is a team that's super high on him. Um, People always throw at Edmonton just because he played for the Oil Kings. Probably unlikely, but if a team is super high on him, they would probably have to expose him in the draft. So if they're super high on him, they're probably thinking, "Well, we got to expose him, and then we might lose him." So that might just, you know, they might just wait until the summer if they really want him anyway. Yeah, and and of course the the extra little wild card there is that um, is that Vegas can negotiate directly with um, with RFAs without contract. So there's a window there, right? Where so you have to do more than just, uh, you can't just protect them. You have to have them under contract if you want them to, if you want them to be really safe. So you know there's there's money concerns there. They can't you know they they have the cap as well, and they they don't have the the pure dollars just to go around picking off all the unsigned RFAs. But but that you know there's that means that young players are going to have which have this natural cross controlled structure built into the, the CBA, they're not going to look as attractive this summer and this summer only. So that that's another... Uh, I All of these things together, actually, you know, even though there's these moves that need to be made, that uncertainty, I think, is going to keep the trade market really boring. And the number of teams who are going to be selling is going to be so, so few. The I think we're going to see very few trades, actually. Yeah, that could be... Yeah, I, I, could, I could see that happening if teams are just sort of, sort of scared of of having to expose certain players, like I, I, I doubt Ottawa is going to trade for a defenseman just for the fact that they would have to expose him, or they would have to expose somebody else, uh, like a Mathot or or a CC or whatever. So, I, 
I don't really know I think... what to. Sorry. Oh I, well, I, I was going to say I think a clever team that had a little bit more patience would, if they found themselves close but not not in a playoff spot when the deadline came around, even if they were only a handful of points out, would choose to sell. That because I think because there's going to be so few um, players moving there are going to be a handful of teams who do want to buy who are comfortably in the playoffs who, who need to load up the, and the Rangers are going to be an obvious example of a team that's almost certainly going to try to pick somebody you know the I think the chances of, of, of selling in that situation for that reason you might be able to get slightly higher prices there it would, it would be extremely against Ottawa's recent character for lack of a better word to do a thing like that they're, they're much more likely to, to add a piece you know, even if they're on the outside looking in, um, you know, because their goal is to try to compete a little bit every year. But, but I think there's there's going to be, for optimistic managers, there's going to be some moments where you'll be able to sell at really good prices this year. Oh yeah, like I think if they were, if they were, I don't want to necessarily say smart, but if they thought about it, they would probably move Lazar and maybe maybe Hammond, although. Hammond already cleared waivers, so I don't know how much how much you can get for him. But it'd probably do that. But yeah, like you said, it's it seems really unlike the Ottawa Senators to do that. So um, we'll see, though. So there, there's been a lot of talk recently about Ottawa and Toronto both potentially making the playoffs, and if they do, there there's a pretty good chance we see a fifth matchup uh, of the Battle Battle of Ontario. And I talked about this with Michaela on last episode, and I think. Since then, it's sort of setting in as a really strong possibility. So, what do you think about the potential for this this series in April? Well, so I'm just just pulling it up right now. That it looks like 27 percent the for Ottawa Toronto, and they're certainly both they're each each other's most likely matchup at this point for the first round, supposing they both make it. So that's to me that's very tantalizing. I I think it's tremendous hockey. I, I mean, I realize there are like I have all those old scars from all the times that the Leafs won in the playoffs, however long ago. <laughs> the, but I I find the what few you know really strong geographic rivalries there are between teams. I find those really compelling. The and I also uh, you know even though Leafs fans as a group are 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 much richer and have much more disposable income to come annoy Ottawa fans in Ottawa, I also like the geographic proximity. I like how how you have lots of fans of both teams in both arenas going back and forth especially in playoff series i think that's that's really fun so i'm i'm looking forward to it i'm you know actively rooting for other games that make it more likely yeah i i have the same feelings i that i said last episode i think it's just it would be very scary as a fan watching that just because i would just totally want to avoid social media because especially if ottawa lost i mean if they won then we could do all the boasting and all that stuff and the end would be super fun. It'd be similar to the Canadian series in 2013. Like that was just incredible. That was just a great time for, for memes and all that stuff. But and oh, then you look that at, was one of my favorite playoff series ever. Oh, that was amazing. As a fan, un, un, unmatchable. That was the best I've ever felt as, as a fan, but <laughs> it was just uh and then you look at the flip side though. Like imagine if, I mean, well, we sort of were on the other side a couple years later, but not quite as bad. I think if we, if we played the Leafs, it would just be 10 times worse losing to them. Um, but you're right. like The coverage of it would be insane. It would probably be really fun hockey. Um, so I think from that standpoint, it'd be pretty cool. Just I'd be so nervous every single game. 
I, I think you know if you're if you're going to be a hockey fan, especially a playoff hockey fan, I think you just have to give in to that. Oh yeah, uh, that you know, like and in fact, just just amp it up. Don't don't hide from it in the slightest. Just you know, sort of when you feel the storm coming, just run out with your shirt off into the street. I that's just <laughs> that like you know I I'm actually a very a very sort of melancholy fan. I'm I'm not not very prone to violent outbursts. But I think when it comes to playoff hockey, you got to let that all out. Oh yeah, and I think at some point Ottawa has to beat the Leafs, right? I mean, they lost to them years ago, and that was a totally different team. But at some point, you got to beat them, and and you know, rub it in in Leafs fans' faces because it's just going to haunt us forever if we don't. Uh, I think even, like, you know, God forbid they lose, but even even those, you know, those streaks of, oh, we lost four or five times, however many times, you know, they become rallying points for franchises where fans get together and bond over those sorts of things. The, yeah. So as long as, as long as it makes a good story, you know, the, the franchise as a whole is still enriched. That's what you, you know, you can't win all the time. You really, you want stories. Yeah, that's fair. I, and that would be easily the most covered series in the playoffs probably even probably even in the states i would get lots of coverage which maybe i'm exaggerating that a bit but i, I think that'd be a huge opportunity for the nhl to market that and it would it would be fun but scary and exciting all at the same time so yeah so it's not you know it's not preposterous that there could be all kinds of of really strong matchups this year and that's of course why they have this this unfortunate divisional system which which puts really strong teams against really strong teams much right. too early but in terms of matchups, it does do what it's supposed to do. You know, you could easily have Ottawa-Toronto in the first round, and then the winner of that playing Montreal in the second round, for instance. You know, that's that's about as good as it gets for 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 neutrals. And then on the other hand, you could get something like Pittsburgh playing Columbus, which has some interesting playoff history. Yeah. And the winner of that playing the winner of of Rangers Capitals, for instance. The especially if we got a rematch of Pittsburgh-Washington, like we did last year. You know, and then then really hitting all of the high notes just in the early rounds in the East without even looking at what's going on in the West. So the, the I mean that's that's the trouble, of course, is that it means that the later rounds are not as good. You know, you, yeah. you amp up the early rounds by making sure that you get all those matchups that you like. But then at the end, you know, all of a sudden you get a real firepower coming out of the Metropolitan against, you know, this year possibly somebody really weak coming out of the central. You know, yeah, I Minnesota think, is the only team of any real strength in the Central this year. Yeah, I think in the past it was sort of like that anyway, just because I don't know. It seemed like the the first round there would be tons of overtime games and tons of high scoring event hockey, but and then by the third and fourth round it wasn't quite as entertaining. So it's sort of similar like that. Um, and honestly, you mentioned the Montreal probably going in the second round and facing Ottawa or Toronto. Like I. I honestly bet that'll happen just because Montreal will be playing, I don't know, someone like Philly or, or Boston or one of these teams, and they're probably better than them. And, and then obviously if, if Ottawa and Toronto one, are two and three, then one of them's obviously got to win. So that'd be that'd be incredible. Yeah, and, and I understand that that there's basically no way of guaranteeing that the late-round matchups are what you want them to be because there's so much randomness that goes into them. So the only thing you can do is you can you can have some control over the early round matchups, and if it has this this extra side effect of having the best teams not necessarily win, not necessarily win very very many rounds, then I, you know that's unfortunate. But I can understand why the league does it from a marketing point of view, especially because 
early playoff rounds are are routinely better watched than late ones. Maybe maybe there's a chicken and egg problem there. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I I would probably assume it's just because you know there's fans like like Senators fans if if the Senators get out in the first round then they might just lose interest after that you know they're only going to watch their team right so it, it sort of makes sense if that, that they're not going to watch the finals so I don't know I don't know re- really how you could fix that yeah I think there's there's going to be an almost unbridgeable divide there between fans of capital H hockey who will watch literally whatever is on and yeah. connect it to what they love no matter you know one way or another and I you know, I have lots of those fans who follow me, and a lot of the things that I do are, are, are tap into that emotional energy that that fans just have for hockey generally. But then there's there's every team is going to have lots and lots of people who are only interested in watching their team, and and they follow them. They're on they're on the track until they lose, and then they go do something else. You know, are the baseball players playing already good? You know, or whatever yeah. it is. So that's the you know golf, I guess, is the traditional alternative choice there. But yeah, the I guess. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think there's any way to bridge in in some long term sense the the different interests of those fans. I think you just have to cater sometimes, sometimes to them. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty hard. Um, well, I, it's getting pretty late. I know we've talked a while. I should probably let you go. It's getting late out there in the Atlantic. It's what ten thirty now, isn't it? Half past ten. Yeah, man. Uh, well, I've kept you along for a while for for the listeners who. Well, actually, yeah, for everybody who doesn't know, I had a power outage mid podcast, so. Uh, had to delay it a bit there, but uh, Micah was nice enough to to stay on. So, but before I let you go, um, just tell the listeners where you can be found online and what sort of work you'll be doing uh, moving forward. So my hockey is my full time job, so I am I am always working on one thing or another. Uh, I'm usually on Twitter, where my handle is at ineffective math. It's all one word: ineffective, not effective. It's a joke on how I used to be a mathematician, but I couldn't <laughs> find a job. Uh, and I have a website where I put some brightly colored things to help you try to understand what's going on with hockey uh, called HockeyViz, that's V-I-Z dot com. And uh, you can subscribe as well if you like and get access to even fancier parts of the website by paying me a small amount of money enough to buy pancakes for my children. <laughs> I, isn't, I think your Twitter account is actually Feeble Math. The, this is a, a a parody account of mine. This is this is how I, I'm really famous. You, know, you can we talked follower count earlier on. That doesn't mean anything. Nobody's famous until they're making fun of you. And uh, I have my suspicions about who runs it, but uh, uh, but I and I, I have to say it. You know, mockery sincerest form of imitation. No, oh, I yeah. doubled that. But uh, it's great to see that sort of thing, oh, even yeah. if it is some. You know, it's very silly sometimes. That's hilarious. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for chatting me with Feeble Math. Yeah, fall Feeble Math. Yeah. Uh, thanks for chatting me with with me today. Uh, I know a lot of people love hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much. It's great for you to have me. All right. Take care. You too. As I wrap it up, reminder to download, rate, and review the Cost Per Pointcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can follow me on Twitter at ShackTS and read my articles at Silver Seven Cents. I'm hoping to get some great guests as the season moves along closer to the playoffs, and it should be fun following this playoff push. And remember, folks, trust the system. Adios.